The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 41, the companions arrive in Knob Creek at the home of Nora Miss Marlborough, where they receive the devastating news they are too late to save Valiador, and the poison has claimed his life. Harl reads a letter from the former Seneschal. In it, he is tasked with preventing Barak Ironskin from obtaining the horn from Black Nail's vault. There is a big problem, though. Ironskin alone seems to know where the vault is. All Harl has is a clue, or more accurately, a set of them. Valiador knows the answers they seek can be found in the riddle and the poem. He has overheard Barak say that the poem is more than it seems, and that there is a third hidden riddle. Harl has never heard of a third riddle, or even a second, for that matter. It's all very confounding. The party decides to head back to Thangar, where they might ask its scholars and experts for their thoughts. Once again, time is of the essence. They decide to save some by returning by way of Sourtongue's swamp. While there, A series of unlucky die rolls indicates the presence of a patch of quicksand that almost spells death for Eredine. If it were not for Umura's quick thinking, the rogue would have been lost to the swamp forever. On day 53, the party wakes and continues into the mountains on their journey towards Thangar. The weather is... Hmm... A four. Nasty, but not bad enough to really hinder their progress. The overcast sky of the previous day remains, and now a biting wind adds to their discomfort. It is strange weather for summer, even as they achieve greater altitudes. Cloaks are drawn tight, and hoods are pulled over heads as they go. While on known roads, I will not roll a stumble upon, but I will roll for wandering encounters. In Merith, any space between settlements is considered dangerous territory. This is an important role insofar as Umura and Eredin are extremely vulnerable. I have ruled that their ordeal with the quicksand reduced them each to a single hit point. After their rescue, Girios managed to heal Eredin of two hit points, and on this day he prays for healing for each of the women. Here are the roles for that. Eredin will be cured of... Just two more. And Umura? Six hit points. That's all Gyrios can do today, although I mustn't forget that the night's rest will have restored an additional one hit point to each. Okay, it's time for the wandering encounter roll. A six on a d6 means there is one. A five. That felt like a close call. 
I think my dice wanted to roll a six there, but day 53 passes without incident. The next day's rolls. Weather. A five. The bad weather persists, improving barely enough to be noticeable, and by now, the lack of sunshine has seeped into everyone's mood. Gyrios prays for new curing spells, and uses one for each of the women. In addition to natural healing, Eridine will get... Five points. And Dumora? Six. Good rolls. I'll update the records. Here's the roll for a wandering encounter. Another five. Another close call. Oh yeah, there is one more thing I wanted to mention before I continue. When we rejoin the party, you'll hear them talking about Blacknail's poem. As with the riddle, I'll present it here in our language. And as before, if this messes with your suspension of disbelief, you might imagine that the poem does not translate so well from Dwarvish into the common tongue. Chapter 42, Part 1, Day 54, Early Evening, Party Status, Harl, 21 of 21 hit points, Gyrios, 27 of 27, Eridine, 12 of 14, Umura, 15 of 18. Spells available, Umura has memorized, Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for Bless. Harl walked several paces ahead of the rest so that he didn't have to listen to them argue. Two days earlier, when he had first read Valiador's letter, his fears about Dwervar had been verified and something else had occurred to him. A terrible truth. He had tried to not think about it, and the close call with Eredin and Umura had otherwise occupied his thoughts for a time, but it had returned, and now the thought came constantly, again and again, a single word, but a word that, for Harl, weighed more than a mountain, and its weight threatened to crush his very spirit. My friend, my Lenselier. Lenselier. It was almost too much to bear. unfair and untrue. I am not being obstinate. I completely see your point. I just don't agree. That's not obstinacy, Umura. To me, the poem is clearly a metaphor. I simply don't believe it was meant to be taken literally. Umura was poking her finger near his face, one of her bad habits when she was in a fighting mood. Girios, what you don't understand is that the dwarven people are a literal people. The poem is a moment of the sublime, caught and preserved in language, and that is all. Not everything is philosophy, you know. Gyrios frowned and shook his head. I would not say that the dwarves are such a literal people. Not at all. Just listen to the way Harl speaks. It's always, by the stones, this and sure as stone, that. But just listen to the words. Umura stabbed the air with her newly ringed finger as she argued. In the middle of the storm, stop and watch the clouds perform. It's as clear as daylight, Umura. The storm represents Blacknell's troubles. He's saying that you can find peace within chaos. It might even be about combat if you think about it. It's a beautiful sentiment. A true warrior's poem. Besides, you heard what Valiador said about it. It's right there in his letter. The poem is more than it appears. You're misinterpreting Valiador's words too. You couldn't be more wrong, insisted the sorceress. The poem is like... 
It's, it's like a painting, but painted with words. Curious, you're impossible. Eridine, surely you can see. It's so obvious. Eridine had been walking with them the whole time, mostly just listening. She almost never spoke anymore. To Umura, she shook her head, no. So you agree with Girios? Again, Eridine shook her head. Could this possibly be the same woman who came running back to rejoin them, saying that friendship was too valuable to give up? The woman was entirely unpredictable. Furthermore, Eridine believed she was, in this case at least, entirely wrong. She had a different idea. It was beginning to take shape in her head, but it hadn't fully come together yet. In the middle of the storm, stop and watch the clouds perform. Valiador believed the poem was not what it seemed. Eridine wasn't entirely sure what that meant, but she had to agree with Umura about one thing, at least. It was unlikely to mean that it was a metaphor. That hardly seemed worth mentioning, true or not. But Umura's literal take didn't seem right either. There was something else, something that they weren't seeing. Eridine didn't have time to marshal all these thoughts before Harl, up ahead, announced that the Thangarian shrine to Gruenmog was just a few minutes away. Not too much longer now. This was welcome news. It meant a fire, the safety of a larger group, benches to sit on, and rest for their weary legs and feet. Sure enough, within a few minutes of Harl's announcements, they smelled the smoke of the fire pit, and then heard the murmur of pilgrims, vendors, and travelers' voices. And then they saw it. The Thangarian Holy Shrine was much bigger than the Dwarvar Inn. A great iron door, proud of the mountainside wall, was the only visible way in or out. It featured a geometric design of intersecting polygons worked in silver filigree across its dark surface. A dozen slitted windows surrounded it above and on either side. They were backlit with soft lamplight, making the place look like a jack-o'-lantern as the sun began to set and darkness fell across the mountainside. Hello, this is Dave from the Frankenstein's Role-Playing Game podcast. We'd like you to listen to us, well, because you hear things like this. Knock once for yes, twice for oh, no. How about that? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes, yes, we can. Very faintly, but you're... You are quite quiet, though. Well, well that's yeah, because you, I was over you, here because I keep forgetting that if you've got a microphone, you have to be somewhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost like sound is a is a physical thing. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to intimidate you guys and make you feel that you're dealing with a professional. So if this is the level of professionalism you're looking for in podcasts, then please do come and join us. The Frankenstein's RPG podcast where we try the truly Herculean task of stitching together the ultimate role-playing game, and by ultimate, we're using it in its very broadest sense, Frankenstein's RPG podcast, available on all good podcast networks. Come and find us. Between the Lines over the course of their adventures, the party has left some strong enemies in their wake. You might well be wondering what the likes of Maynard Magari or Raffenfell the Adored have been up to. Rest assured, they have not been idle. Perhaps it's worth mentioning again here that, as the party gains in experience and levels, so do their adversaries. Barak Ironskin is a third and even more dangerous enemy, but the individual who represents the greatest threat at this moment is someone the player characters have never actually met although they have seen his work. I'm talking, of course, about Sav Maramon. 
I think it's time to develop Sov a little further and to discuss his recent movements. Sov is a cleric of Enkhkadra, the old god of decay. When he sacrificed the high priestess of Hanavi, he attained level 6 and gained access to 3rd level and 4th level spells. He definitely has a preference for some spells over others and will almost always have prayed for, cause fear, and hold person, 1st and 2nd level spells, respectively. As a reward for achieving level 6, he was given the 3rd level spell, Animate Dead. Strictly speaking, this is not by the book. In basic rules, it is technically a 5th level magic user spell and wasn't available to clerics until AD&D came along, so I'm bending the rules a little. Since I'm on the subject of undead and rule bending, BX stipulates that undead do not make any sound and cannot be detected by listening at doors, for example, as Aradine has done. But largely because this is a podcast and silent undead would really not be much fun, I'm overriding that rule. Zombies will moan and skeletons will clatter. At this point, I'm going to roll up Sov's stats, but since I've already described him as physically stronger than average, and because his prime requisite ability score is Wisdom, I will min out both of these ability scores at 13. Okay, let's get started. Strength. I've rolled an 8, so that will min out at 13. Intelligence is next. A 12. Okay. Wisdom. A 14. Not off the charts, but that certainly works. Dexterity. 13. Oh, that's a surprise. Okay, there's a small armor class bonus here. I've never really thought of Sov as agile, but he certainly is good with his hands. Constitution. A 10. Charisma. Another 10. Okay, pretty good rolls overall. Sov is average or above average across the board. For hit points, he'll get 6 die 6 with no bonuses. As usual, he'll min out at half. Let's see, uh, I don't have 6 six-sided dice, so I'll roll 3 at a time. The first set of 3d6. I've got an 11. And the next set? 11 again. 22. Well, that's more than half. So that's the score we go with. Finally, I need to share some information about what Sov has been up to recently. Unlike Raffenfell and Magari, I know exactly what he is doing. In fact, I keep track of his movements on a calendar and on a map so I don't screw it up. Barok, as you might have guessed, has found Blacknail's vault. But due to his curse, he is unable to make a journey there. In fact, he cannot even leave Dwervar. The god Enthkadra, recognizing an opportunity to cause death and spread chaos on a massive scale, has sent Sov Merimon to ensure Barok's success. Currently, Sov is en route to Blacknell's vault. His quest is to finish what Barok Ironskin started. It's a journey that will take some time to complete, however. On the evening of Day 54, as the player characters approach the Thangarian shrine to Grunmog, Sov is closing in on his goal. In the past weeks, he has abandoned his zombies, walked to Burke, hired a wagon, traveled to Zaysha via Wilmington, and is currently situated so that he'll reach his destination in just seven days. If Harl, Umura, Giros, and Eredin hope to stop him, they will need to figure things out very soon.
Dramatis Personae, Harl Stonecarver. When the boys of Dwervar outgrew their games of pushing and wrestling and shoving, they worked out their aggression and constant need to prove themselves in more intellectual contests. Now, the dwarves of Merith were great lovers of board games. The most popular choice by far was Hosh Gullah. To play, two to four dwarves would sit around a board upon which was drawn a simple nine by nine square grid. Each dwarf would have a bowl of uniformly colored stones of white, black, red, or blue. One by one, and in turn, they would place their stones on the board, trying to make three in a row. It was a slightly more advanced version of a popular children's game. The thing that elevated Hoshgala to a more sophisticated level was the drumming. In addition to the bowl of colored stones, each player would have a drum close at hand. Because the game originated in the shrines, a cleric's drum was used. Of course, in dwarven culture, clerics were known as solemns, and so the game was called Hoshgala, Solemn's Drum. Players would take up a beat. On each fourth beat, the next player would place their stone. If they missed a beat, they missed their turn. Experienced players upped the challenge by increasing the tempo. It was a simple game, but it forced one to think quickly and to concentrate. Little distractions could lead to big errors. Whenever he got the chance, 13-year-old Harl would challenge Egrog Gott to a round of Hoshgala. Victory was assured, and victory he had learned felt good, even when it was cheaply won. By contrast, Harl hated and avoided playing with Egrog's brother, Nitrum. The older dwarf won almost every game he tried, and seemed to have a personal vendetta against Harl. Nitrum was soundly beating Harl at Hoshgala on this day. You're slowing down on your turn. And spinning up on mine, Harl. Where's your honor? This was not true. Merely an attempt to distract. It worked. Harl made a bad play. Shh! I can't concentrate. He countered, weakly. With all of your talk. The game should be played. In silence. Such a purist. Teased Nitro, placing his own stone. Be quiet. Careful with your next move, Harl. Don't lose focus now. Nitrim's victory was close at hand. <laughs> he chuckled, enjoying himself. There. Had Harl blocked him and forced a stalemate? And there. No. Nitrim had won yet again. Better luck next time, Harl. Try not to get so distracted. At this point, the two young dwarves simply stared at each other for a few awkward moments. Finally, Nitrum shrugged. Well, I have to go, so just say it. Harl's mouth turned into a straight line and his eyes became hard. He and his friends had a tradition that the loser in a game of Hoshgala would, by way of punishment, address the winner by the greatest honorific in the dwarven language. Well, said Nitrum, tapping his foot and growing impatient. I told you, I have to go now. Through gritted teeth, Harl took his punishment and said the word. Well played, my Lancelier. Nitrim smiled, collected his drum, and strutted away, leaving Harl to clean up.
Chapter 42 Part 2 Day 55 Morning Party Status Harl, 21 of 21 hit points Kyrios, 27 of 27 Eridine, 13 of 14 Umura, 16 of 18 Spells available Umura has memorized Shield Charm Person Levitate and Knock Kyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds times 2 and Bless Even though he had slept on one of the available pallets, Harl woke the next day feeling low. The weather had improved, and dramatically so. The stubborn gloom of the past few days gave way to fresh sunlight and nearly cloudless skies. Still, Harl could not manage a smile for his friends, even when Girios brought them all hot bowls of soup from a vendor to break their fast. The cleric had been up for hours. He was perky and bright, full of ideas. When they finished their soup, Girios collected their bowls and returned them to the vendor. He's right, don't you think? Umora asked Harl. They might well know something useful. Girios had suggested that they ask the Solemns of the Shrine to share their wisdom before moving on to Thangar. It is unusual, Harl replied, but I suppose that the situation warrants it. He sighed heavily. The dwarf made for the great iron doors that marked the shrine's entrance. The portal was designed to open outward. It had no handle, and entry was only possible if someone pushed the door open from within. A slitted window just to the left of the entrance served to facilitate this. It had a little bell, moored by a chain, by which an attendant novice could be summoned to the door. Harl rung the little bell and waited. Shortly, he heard the sound of shoes on stone, and a face appeared in the window. Unlike fully ordained solemns, this dwarf did not wear an iron mask. Delivery is not expected for another... The novice trailed off, having noticed Harl's armor. What do you want, brother? I am sorry to have disturbed you, said Harl. I need to speak with the High Enzo. It is a matter of utmost importance. I wonder, how will Harl's request be received? The novice on the other side of the window looked unimpressed. In fact, she had heard many similar petitions in the past. Maintaining her patience, she gave the same speech she always gave. The High Enzo does not grant audience with pilgrims and penitents. May I suggest that you speak with one of the priests in the Citadel instead? A donation can help to speed the process if, as I understand, the matter is urgent. No, no, it's, it's nothing like that. Harl felt a growing sense of dread. He was not going to be allowed in, unless... A painful memory bloomed in his mind, and he remembered something he had once said to Kagan. Harl, are you a prince? A prince? Ha, no, hardly. There are many, many stone carvers in the High Forge. I'm a distant cousin of Lord Cleth, that's all. Nothing special. But technically, you're in line for the throne, right? I mean, you have royal blood, right? You're wrong to think of me so. What, what you say is true, but a hundred dwarves would have to drop dead before I sat the throne of Dwarvar. Ah, mind your step here. Can you see ahead? There's a large crack in the stone beside the- Harl reached for Valiador's letter. He kept it under his breastplate, close to his heart. He drew it forth and unfolded it reluctantly, as though what he was about to do would somehow make the words become true. 
Of course, they already were true, agonizingly true. Harl sighed heavily and spoke again. This time, there was iron in his voice. You will open this door to me, and I will speak with the High Enzo. Harl handed the letter through the window slit. The novice scanned it and then looked up in surprise. My name is Harl Stonecarver, fourth cousin to the late Klanitha Stonecarver, and I am the rightful chief of Dwarvar. Now, open this door. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider lending your support. There are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show on forums or retweet episode release announcements. Leave a rating or review on your preferred podcatcher or simply tell a friend. My gratitude to everyone who has done any of these things to help out. Speaking of helping out, here's a review by David on the Podbean app. David writes, So good. Very entertaining. Love the dramatic telling mixed with minimal game mechanics. Can't wait to see where they go next. Me too, David. Me too. But only the dice gods know what's in store. Thank you very much for that review. My gratitude is also due to those whose voices make the story come alive. Returning to the show as adolescent Nitrum God is Sid, my amigo in Arizona, and playing the role of novice, another newcomer to the show. Welcome Alicia Natal, aka Respawn Machine, host of The Night Shift on Twitch, as well as A Silent K on YouTube. I'm so glad to have you on board. Thank you very much. A final thanks to Grim at GrimYells.com for providing a name for my dwarvish game when I asked the Twitterverse for some ideas. For show notes, maps, and for this episode, an updated set of character sheets complete with ability scores, as well as other thoughts, drawings, etc., etc., please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. If you use social media, find me on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast and on Twitter using the handle at manticoretale. I can be reached by email too at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I mentioned last time that I'm thinking of doing a bonus episode sometime in the future to answer the questions that I received through email. If there's anything you'd like to know, now's the time to ask. The adventure continues on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Microphones and Monsters is a Cthulhu D&D actual play with a balance of horror, mystery, and comedy. Our story begins in a 1920s Magitek noir setting. We follow the story of Alistair. That power is very much something that I need, and I don't want that to stop. Victor. I don't think I want to help you. And Julian. It's burning. What happened here can't see the light of day. As they come face to face with Eldritch Horrors. (laughs) I don't think you could ever stop me. And try not to fall into madness. Go to microphonesandmonsters.com or listen wherever podcasts are found.